So what they're saying, right, just be clear, clear for our audience, because I, I actually I actually read that article, I just look at that, I just read it too, but what they said was, Drop it, Jem's Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Jamie's Out Podcast, a show you come to watch attorneys and their friends talk about issues that everyone cares about on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. We are here with Jack and Everett, our partners in crime. You're Yo, what's good, people? And our luxurious guests, Data Hextel and Celia Burgos. Say hi to the um, audience. What's up, everybody? And this is the Jury's Out podcast. So you to watch, uh, to watch uncut raw conversations, cause. Do it again. Jury's Out. There we go. I'm not really good at all these buttons. I'm all a talker. <laughs> <laughs> and we're here to talk about uh, mental health in the youth. Um, there, there's so many things nowadays affecting mental health. COVID, obviously, that's the real obvious one. Oh, I hear sto- horror stories about people uh, going from that seclusion back to the regular world. But then there's also things like social media and peer pressure and bullying. Racism. Oh, oh racism. <laughs> I forgot about racism. I forgot about that one. That's my Puerto Rican privilege. <laughs> um, all these hot topics that we, we want to know as a society and as, a, as, a, as an audience, what exactly is going on? And, and with the kids. With the kids. With the babies. The oh, for sure. For sure. So okay. why don't you introduce yourself? Why don't you introduce yourself? And then talk about what experience you have with uh, therapy with children. So, yes, my name is Dana Hextall, but you guys can refer to me as Day. I have my own platform called Miss Well and Woke is where I discuss the very topics that you guys are just saying about mental health and how it impacts the millennials in this generation as well as the youth. And something I've been doing for a very long time within the field of mental health is treating children and their families. So I made a major career change um, as a result of it. So everything that you guys want to discuss today about working with kids within, like I said, a hospital sector, within the education system, I've seen a lot in the past couple of years since C19 jumped off. Okay. Hey, Celia. So I am Celia Burgos. I'm a licensed uh, uh, social worker. I currently work in a school setting, but I do have experience with working with mental health, working with children, working with families, um, providing services to the community. Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing that? Uh, yeah. Overall, over seven years, okay. seven, eight years in total. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned C-19. Let's start, with, start there. What's, what's a C-19? C-19. C-19. COVID, brother. <laughs> oh! See, we forget. We yeah, forget yeah, this yeah, kind of comes off. Like, like, that if you say the actual thing on, on the video, you get a, you get affected. So it's she, like a curse word. Yeah, it's like a curse <laughs> word. You, you say COVID on this podcast, we fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm looking now. I'm looking now, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah, you know. like a block or something, right? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, so you know while during the brink of COVID I was working in an emergency room so I was front and center to see a lot of what was impacting the youth I worked for um, pediatric psychiatry wow. so like in gross numbers we were seeing kids come in like a record just because some of the fear-mongering that was also going on in the media yeah. that was telling kids, like, you know, you can't go outside. This is changing the dynamic. You can't go to class. So it was heavily having impacts on kids, even just how they related to their family overall. Mm-hmm. So you take children where you spend majority of your day outside of the home in a classroom setting. And now you're forced to be around maybe your eight brothers and sisters in an apartment or in a home and your parents and the dynamic shifts completely. Mm-hmm. So we saw an increase and. One of the most devastating things I will honestly say that we saw too is that human trafficking actually increased for youth because they were home and they were on the internet. So a lot of the kids who were sitting there, they were talking to adults or playing video games on the Discord or the Twitch. They were finding themselves in relationships with older people who they had more access to because they weren't in the security or the protection of the school system. Wow. So that was something that we really, really had to combat at that time. That's a lot. That's a lot of. That's a lot of space to fill up that those hours that typically would have been filled up by a normal being in a school setting in a safe environment where that's yeah that's the check-in point right when kids are in school they get access to basic needs 
right? You have us providing safe environment for them to sit there and educate themselves. And we also have food that's provided to the children. Outside of the confounds of that system, they're now at home. And we can't protect everything that's going on at home. Some parents are able to sit in the home and work from home, but everybody didn't have the luxury during COVID to stay at home with their kids and to monitor them. So now we're seeing it on the kickback now that school has kind of restarted itself. Kids are coming back and they were exposed to so many different things that we didn't foresee by being on their own devices. And like I said, social media played a lot into that because where kids may have some level of awareness, they're now having a higher level of exposure to things that can hurt them. Mm-hmm. So you said you worked in an emergency room. So is that like the regular emergency room for like a hospital where kids are coming for like a physical injury? And then that, so I guess my question is like, at what point do you get involved when it's something going on beyond the physical emergency that the kids are going through? So, you know, there's two actually two types of emergency rooms that people don't talk about, especially within New York City Health and Hospitals, which is where I worked. And you have the psychiatric emergency room, which is one port of entry, and then you have medical, right? And so any of those times, those things can overlap. So you can come in for a medical reason and disclose something that, like, all right, we're going to have to send you on the other side so you can chop it up a little bit. That's when you tend to come in front of me, right? So we would have issues like this, for instance, where kids would run away from home. And it could be something as, you know, a staple as I ran away from home because I felt overwhelmed with the rules that are going on in my house. The only time that I got to be a kid is when I was going to school and I was around my friends, but things at home are getting too intense for me. So you would have kids who would run away. And then upon running away, like I said, you're introduced to other things going on into the community that can have a significant impact. Those kids that would run away were more of a likelihood for a predator to find them. And then, like I said, that's when you would end up sitting in front of me. I ran away from home. I got exposed to something on the street. Now I'm getting picked up by the police and being transported here in this environment. Even things like discipline. You know, we have all different types of rules and restrictions about how people discipline their children, right? It's safe to say it like this. You can open hand, let's say, tap your your child on the hand if they do something wrong. But there's certain ways that people communicate with their kids or discipline their children that are not considered status quo, right? Mm -hmm. If this is happening in your house with nobody looking, a lot of people don't know. When your kids go to school, there's somebody to say, that's not cool, that's not right. Mm -hmm. When it's happening at home, we don't have the same type of eyes on that situation. So it would rise to another level when this was happening at home for people where these incidents that would occur one-on-one between a child and their parent would spill over and you would have a neighbor activate 911 because they overheard something or somebody in the community. Now you're getting sent to me too so I can kind of triage the situation and figure out who needs help, not just for the children themselves in the situation, but their families as well, what kind of supports are needed to kind of keep an even rapport. Now, can a child who's feeling that they're in a situation that's tough or that needs assistance seek your assistance no so they actually have really cool things that are created like there's an incentive called um, NYC well and so they have a call in number it's a mobile crisis center where children can even text in or call in and receive access to services and kind of voice if they're experiencing some type of psychological distress really? what's that, what's that again? it's called NYC well so it's 1-800 NYC well So people aren't aware because a lot of people, you know, within the community are very concerned about having psychological assistance or supports. Nobody wants to talk about mental health, right? You know, it's considered taboo. It's considered one of those things where it's like it's uncomfortable. So they want to make it more accessible. So the city came out with an incentive to say, hey, you can always text and or call in some of your concerns and discreetly we'll send somebody to you within 48 or 72 hours to your home to psychologically assess you on your premises. So people didn't realize like you don't always have to step into the hospital if you feel like it's intimidating. Somebody will come to you and make sure you get the same level of care and treatment. Right. Now, now Silly, did you you also get, you know, your, I guess, clients from the hospital or did they have to find you and go to you? So I worked in foster care. I was in foster care for almost two years. Um, We, it was a residential. Mm -hmm. So we had the, the youth with all sorts of mental health issues residing there. Um, a lot of our kids actually went to some of her hospitals or hospitals in the area. She had um, kids. So, <laughs> so we, our kids came in from the state, from uh, the Board of Education, uh, from ACS. So they came from different areas. So our kids were already living on campus. 
um, going back to what you said before with the sex trafficking, a lot of our kids, because during COVID, they were stuck in that um, facility. They used to leave campus. Um, they got caught up in the sex trafficking. It was, it was very difficult for the most part because now we didn't know where our kids went. But we found out through whatever circumstances that they were picked up, they were put to do things that were traumatizing. Yeah, traumatizing to them. Mind you, these kids were in residential because they already come from traumatizing backgrounds. They have a lot of um, deep-rooted traumas, abuse, um, physical, uh, emotional, sexual, um, different levels of abuse. Um, but, yeah, I got my kids um, because they were placed um, mm -hmm. at the residential. Um, it was a very sad situation for the most part. Uh, they went definitely went to the hospitals. Um, and they got the services from people like Dana who were able to assist with them. Right, right. And is there like an age, like, is, is it any age or is it like a certain level, like only 10 and above? Like, is it? Actually, um, my familiarity with working with kids, anyone from the age of five and up. Mm -hmm. Five? Yes, because, uh, you know, popular to contrast, there are different mental health disorders that can occur within children that may look different in adulthood, right? So a lot of things that people aren't aware about mental health is that there could be a predisposition to certain, certain health issues. Mm -hmm. For instance, somebody who's bipolar disorder, as a child, it may show up as a mood disorder mm -hmm. on record, but it may not reveal itself until the child is within a, into adulthood, that you'll start to see it that way. Or a child is labeled schizoaffective, where they may have experiences where they're seeing or hearing things, but as an adult, it may be full-blown schizophrenia. What's schizoaffective? So schizoaffective is kind of like very similar to schizophrenia. A person is having experience where they may be internally preoccupied, where they may talk to themselves or have experiences where they may see figures or different things that are occurring in front of them that we ourselves may not acknowledge is happening. I can see that happening. Like, you know, kids, like, you know, they play with toys, they talk to themselves, you know, so I can see that happening in like, you know, five, six-year-olds. Like, how, how in the world are you supposed to know that that's going, you know, that's going on, you know? So a part of working with children in large form, especially during therapy, is play therapy and seeing how they interact. Within play with children, you can see them have different levels of conversation. You put two dolls in front of a kid, they're going to play out their household. Mm -hmm. They're going to play out their friendships. They're going to show you what's going on. They're going to tell you what the boogeyman looks like in front of them or what the boogeyman looks like behind the scenes. And they're going to engage you in that way. So it's really asking detailed questions to kids. A lot of kids have um, imaginary friends, and that's a part of them being explorative and having healthy imaginations. So we receive that. But there's another level of it. When their experience is kind of like, you know, when kids talk about not only am I seeing my imaginary friend, but I'm having full-blown conversations and I'm engaging my imaginary friend in a certain way, right? right? And if this spans over the course of time and the kid hasn't learned to kind of like sector that relationship, that's when it becomes more of a concern. Mm -hmm. And that's when we do think about like predisposition, like now what's in the family dynamic? Okay. So we do things like genograms where we sit down with families and we talk to them about like, what's in mom's side of the family, dad's side of the family, that could eventually be a precursor for this kid to have those experiences ongoing. We look for the patterns. Mm. Okay. And what, what, what kind of patterns are like the ones you're looking out for? Or, or like what's like signs that like, and what, what are you looking for? What are like? Mental health, substance abuse, um, any type of abuse. We so look for... Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. So we look for substance abuse, um, any type of abuse. Um, like, like, like bruises in the same place that they, after they heal. Like, like. So like? when we're looking at the family dynamic, we're looking for stuff that happened through the generations. Like, um, let's say your grandfather had um, issues with drinking. Did your father also have issues with drinking? Now maybe that could lead to you having. Or you've seen those patterns. You've seen your yes. Mm -hmm. So those are, that's what we're looking for when we look at the genogram. What patterns in in the family hierarchy have you seen? Um, and a lot of children share all this information. It's interesting to see how even a, a child as small as five can can tell you those things. Yes, oh, I've wow. seen daddy. Uh, yeah, mommy drinks. Daddy drinks. Uh, grandpa has drunk. Um, I've seen mommy uh, hitting dad. I seen dad hitting mom. I seen grandpa yelling at grandma. The, the, those conversations with those kids are very telling. Mm -hmm. 
Right, because I was gonna ask, like they, they don't these most of these kids I'm sure don't come with a with a documented rap sheet of, of it's it you're getting it through the conversations with them, with the with the with the ther- the play therapy, mm-hmm. with the art therapy, where you're getting them to draw or things like that, talk about what you know, I've seen I've seen things where, you know, they say draw your family in and like mm-hmm. depending on the size of who they draw, their family members, it's kinda like who is the authority. You know, if they draw someone that's like red and or whatever colors, you know, they have like, for you know, devil horns or something. It's like okay, that's how you're visualizing mm-hmm. these that, people in your family. Accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it may not be as accurate as that, but I'm saying just as an example. No, nah, but like my son drew like my son, he's four, he's about to be five in July, but he drew a picture of his family, like me, mom. His little brother and him, and he was the biggest one. Nice. And we was all little ones under him, yeah. and he, but he drew himself like his. Mm-hmm. He was like half the page, had a whole body and everything. And we was like some little stick figures in the corner. So <laughs> he runs my house. That, that was that, that's, 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 that's what he's saying. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. He said he see himself as the man of the house. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. You know, it's, it's very informative in that way to think that you can look at a child's drawing and you can, you know, come to so many conclusions based off of what they're putting in the images. Mm-hmm. And like you said, just the amount of, like, size and stature. If they put somebody on the outside of the house, that's a testament to how they feel about that, too. If they feel like that's received, or if they're on the outside of the house mm-hmm. and the whole family's inside, it tells you how mm-hmm. that child sees themselves in comparison to their, you know, their relatives. That's so interesting. And also the colors. You have to pay attention to the colors the kids use when they're drawing a picture. Mm-hmm. Um, each color could mean something very different. Um, red, red is always always associated with anger, right. um, and you kind of just have a dialogue with the children, like, "Oh, why did you choose red? Why was red so important? Why did you choose that color? Why did you draw yourself on the outside of the family?" You could have a child who draws a picture of the household, and the whole family is on one side of the house, and they're just standing on the side. Or you can have I had a kid who drew the mother all the way on the outside of the house, on the other side of the family. Um, and their pictures were so detailed. Uh, you get so much information from those kids, especially in their drawings. So, so back, back to the genogram, like is, what exactly is it? Like, is it, are you just like, is it the play dialogue or is it? So, it's a family tree. It's a family tree, essentially. Okay. It's a, a, a family tree that's really like in depth, right? Where we're using shapes and symbols to attribute to certain conditions or concerns. So it doesn't just have to do with mental health. It also has to mm-hmm. do with medical as well. So mm-hmm. it can you can use a circle, a square, a triangle to indicate where within the family these things are more pervasive. So diabetes runs in your family. Mm-hmm. There's a symbol that you can include in the genogram that showed that this many people generations back have diabetes. So okay. that makes it, you know, where I'm working with a seven or eight year old child, we're going to have more of a conversation about nutrition and we're going to talk about health and like what that looks like. How does your family prepare dinner or have meals with one another? And like that, like using that genogram as a precursor to say, this is what it looks like, you know, in broad sense, it's very helpful to the provider, but also to the family as well, because whereas they may not have made these connections, they now have like a whole diagram drawn that we provide to them and that we keep as well to show them that this is what it looks like down the line. Is a genogram as part of the process of an intake for a new uh, youth client? Yes. And, you know, like, people come into therapy for many different reasons. So one of the biggest things that we believe is provided is you meet people where they are. I'm not going to rush you with a genogram. Like, the first <laughs> thing you want to do is may not talk about everybody in your family. Right. You know what I'm saying? I like, know you. <laughs> like, you got to get to know people. You got to see what people are. It's a creative way to have a conversation with families. And I always say every child at every age is not able to have an in-depth conversation about what's going on with them. So it's a good time to invite other people into the conversation. That's when I can say like, hey, like we're going to have mom, dad, grandpa, you know, whoever you feel comfortable with, sit down with us and we're going to do this together. Mm-hmm. And even within the creation of this document, I'm seeing how you guys interact with each other just by doing this right, right. or what was known or not known to the family by doing it. Right. So it gives us a lot of good feedback. That's a structure that you really can't hide anything, you know what I'm saying? Because it naturally plays out. So it even, you know, you can't talk to uh, a parent about their child like, yeah. because they're gonna be like, oh no, they do this and they do that because they're trying to cover up their own. But when you have, when you have, you set it out like that, 
you know, the kids be snitches. So, like, well, I, I know <laughs> yeah. be, like, telling on them. Like, oh, they have to beat your kid and go, throw that picture! Throw <laughs> <laughs> me with a smiley face! <laughs> that all the time where a mama getting at the kid and be like dang why my hair so big because you always talking about <laughs> like it is man that's crazy so um do these kids ever uh get into a situation where they're providing you uh with, get into the situation where they're getting themselves services on their own or it's always always through like a triggering event you know, um, there's kids who come to me all the time, and this is an experience that I have that I always feel like is a very humbling experience. Reality of it is only men in mental health, the field of mental health, there's only 7% providers that look like me, mm -hmm. right? So I work in an old boys prep school at this time. I transitioned after the pandemic. When de Blasio was saying that, like a lot of kids were in need of service and mental health services, I decided to leave the hospital. I was like, my time there has been served. I want to go into the education system. I want to bridge the gap. A lot of these kids are coming from the schools to me. I want to know what's up. So when I got into the building, I would have little boys approach me and they go, I have never gotten to talk to somebody like you. I've wow. never gotten a chance to sit down and have a conversation with somebody who looks like me. Wow. There's been times where I've been assigned to service providers. There's been times I've been sent to places. But now I have the option of having a conversation with somebody who looks like me. And they're like, they're here for it. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's, it's, it's been, like I said, one of those experiences where I said it's very humbling to say that although there's not many of us within the profession, you see growing in numbers, mm -hmm. that we have to be in those spaces and places to give the kids the access and the comfortability to go seek help on their own. Mm. Yes, yes. Right, right. So, so what, um, what specifically got you guys into this field? And specifically why kids? You know what I mean? Like, a lot of social workers and psychologists and people who offer therapy services, they tend to stay away from kids. I'm not saying I blame them, because I, I don't want to teach. I want nothing to do with kids, because <laughs> it's a lot. And I get it. Like, kids are going, they got a lot of pressure. They got a lot on their plate, too. But, you know, I, I just, you know, kids. They, 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 they cross boundaries that some adults don't Fucking even cross. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to put it nicely. But, yeah, you know, so, but, like, what made y'all say, not only am I going to take on this monumental task of giving therapy, but also to youth? I mean, in retrospect, some of the issues that we have with adults started because of things that people learn when they were kids. And I guess off the rip, that's where I was coming from with it when I decided to navigate this field. Like, my first working experience, um, I worked on a research project called Stress and Justice, right? And it was basically about children who experienced their parents getting arrested or some form of violent arrest. And what we were looking to see is if like um, cortisol levels were impacted because that's the stress hormone. Mm -hmm. And so for kids who witnessed their parents being like violently arrested or experiencing level of assault, those kids had like um, lower self-efficacy. So those kids felt like they were less likely. I'm sorry. Oh, self-efficacy. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so basically it was saying that kids who witnessed their parents being um being in a situation where they were arrested or there was like a violent incident that occurred in front of them, they were less likely to feel that they would be able to succeed in the future. Wow. So by witnessing that level of trauma, those kids automatically grow up with more stress. And so we studied this over the course of six years. I did this from 16 to 21. I worked on this study and um, going in, interviewing um, parents and interviewing children. And that's what kind of spearheaded my career. I was like, now that I know the data behind it, right? Now that I've done the research to understand how the community is being impacted by these things, how can I provide more of a direct care and service? And I realized that if at seven or eight years old, I'm already telling myself that, hey, I'm likely to get arrested because my dad was arrested, or I'm likely to get arrested because my mom had this um, you know, legal issue, and now I feel like I can't graduate from high school or I can't go on to college. Like, where can we fix that? So that became like a mission of mine to say, like, I want to get in before this, um, you know, frame of thought sets in and these kids determine for the rest of their lives, I ain't going to be nothing. I'm not going to do nothing with myself. What about you, Celia? What, what, what got you into this, into this work? So I wanted to work with geriatric, uh, the old population. Um, I thought that they had so much stuff to offer, so much. They were a wealth of knowledge. Um, unfortunately, the whole aspect of death and dying freaked me out, um, and I was like, no. <laughs> that shit is heavy, man. <laughs> right? Like, he was just talking to them last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man. 
it happens in the blink of an eye. Yeah. But similar to what Dana was saying, um, all a lot of the stuff happens at early stages. So you have to kind of, for me to understand, I like understanding things and why they happen. So for me to feel that personal need for me to understand, I wanted to go back to where it all begins. Um, then it kind of like, for some, I don't know how, destiny, I was leaded to doing work with families. Um, and little by little, I started working more with families, individuals, um, and kind of got to where I'm in a school setting now as well. Um, so I, although I am in a school setting serving the kids, I do get the, I'm able to work with families as well. So I do speak to parents, I do call them in, I do assist them with the community. So we actually wear many, many hats. I mean, I can only imagine how, how crazy it can be. Like, it, <laughs> do, you, do you feel, do you, I mean, of course, it, it's a skill in and of itself to not take what you experience home. Right, like, cause you're human at the end of the day. It so can be, things that, and so I'm sure there's also some things that you resonate with. Like, damn, I kind of see a little of myself in this child, or, or things like that, or, or you know, you know somebody who is like, you know what, like, I know somebody who's the older version of you that didn't get that help. So mm -hmm. I'm sure there's, a, it takes a lot of power to not bring that home and not affect your own, you know. It sure does. Uh, I tell people, I call out black sometimes. <laughs> I'm so serious. I tell people I call out black and people ask me all the time. They're like, what do you mean by that? I have black fatigue. Okay. I was like, there are experiences that the kids and the families that we are working with that have very real connection to the issues that we see in our everyday lives. Right, right. Like you said, trauma experiences that we may all encounter because we're human beings, right? Mm -hmm. So there's days where I have to prioritize my own health and well-being. Mm -hmm. I am a jet skiing, vacation taking, rock climbing, hiking, swimming type of sister. Like, I do things <laughs> to promote. Process that pain. Right, you know what I'm saying? I gotta, to experience. I gotta put it into other things. Cause like I said, you know, our, our brain is very sensitive. Mm -hmm. So when we take on other people, it's called like, you know, vicarious trauma. Vicarious trauma is, comes with the territory of our job. So I always tell people, if you meet a social worker, Give them a smile, you know, yeah. maybe throw them a Snickers, do whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever you feel like you do because, like, nine times out of the ten, by some, like, direct narrative that they've overheard, they've experienced vicarious trauma, mm -hmm. and they're still learning how to navigate those spaces. As you get deeper engrossed into the field, you learn how to do it better, of course. So, I mean, you, you said something before, is like, um, you know, people don't understand that if someone sees their dad get arrested, they're more likely to get arrested. And it seems like for some reason, a lot of people don't believe that, right? They're like, nah, you got your own choices. Like you had your own choice not to get arrested, not to do these things. Like, why do you think it's so hard for people to not believe that, you know, when they see their parents do certain things that they're gonna do it too, you know what I mean? Because, you know, it's America, you know, that's what people say, it's America, it's the freedom of choice. You always have a choice to do something different than what your parents did. but. No, nah, like if you see something happen with your parents, it's more likely it's going to happen to you. So why do you think that people have a hard time dealing with that? You know, it's one of those things where it says easier said than done, right? So we try to encourage kids and we try to encourage people and say, you don't have to live the same lifestyle that your family once led. But then there's a lot of things that play into that. Your first interaction in the world is with your family. That's your first stream of knowledge, right? And that almost becomes authority over what's going to happen for you how you live, where you go, what you eat, how you engage. Your first sense of community is within your household. It's not until after that when your parents send you off to school or some variation of school, say, where you have other social interactions. And that's when you meet people who are like, well, hey, I live like this. Why do you live like that? Or I got this going on with me and it's possible for you to get this. You need different types of communities to engage with and effort to see that things are possible. If you only deal with one type of situation, it limits your viewpoint. Mm -hmm. it's, like the, it's like the reason why you should travel. Like mm -hmm. That's the reason why you should travel. Expands your uh, yeah. world view. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Got to get out of New York City, baby. <laughs> you got to see, uh, see other ways to eat chicken. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? There's other shit than chicken. There's a lot more other shit than chicken. That Bronx worldview. <laughs> you know, the Bronx worldview ain't a worldview, it's a block view. You know? <laughs> block work. Block work. Um, so what did y'all study in school? 
So um, for undergrad, I was a psychology major. And like I said, obsessed with studying the mind and the brain, how it functions. And then for graduate school is when I dived into clinical social work. Okay. What about you, Celia? Human resource, uh, because my school did not have social work. So it was human resource. Um, and then in grad school, it was uh, clinical social work. And what, and what got you into, what pivoted you from that to what you're currently doing? Um, it was kind of like, because human resource is essentially, for some reason, I don't know why it's called, it was called human resources in my school, okay. but it was social work. Oh, okay, so okay. It, it was the same thing. Yeah, they some schools be doing that. They be, lab- they be mislabeling them. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a tax thing or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> so they actually, my um, undergrad had a partnership where uh, Delphi, um, I think I'm saying it right. But they did have a partnership with Adelphi, which is one of the one of the big uh, social work schools. Unfortunately, I didn't know about that program until I was already graduating. If I would have known, I would have joined in there and would have done like the three three to five um, program and graduated with my oh, uh, wow, social work wow. degree. So when so when you originally went to college, you were studying. You didn't even know, like you were studying what what. Your school was describing human resources, but you were you didn't necessarily know what that was going to entail. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. If you were to go back now, you would have started a program that fit more in line with what you were going to do. Yes, I feel like the programs that they would have offered would have been more, would have gave me the more fundamental information that I needed to to do social work. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't have that. But they still gave me some sort of level of classes that I needed, but it wasn't social work related. What uh, what school? Mount St. Mary College. Okay. That's up in Newburgh. Okay. I have no idea where it is. Exactly. It was, like, <laughs> <laughs> she said it was like it was like the worst school. And she was like, uh, actually, I don't even want to tell you what school I went to because that shit was garbage. <laughs> so, you know, I said I went to one of the greatest HBCUs. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> always you know, always something one. that they like to call, you know, Morgan wow. State University. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, I <ain't> so <laughs> Um, yeah, Morgan State, y'all okay, I guess, you know. <laughs> no, sorry, let's get back to this, uh, historically back colleges. How, how many of you guys are not liking each other? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, after, after, after you graduate, maybe it's okay. What else so I love? But when we in there, it's black on black, baby, you know, I don't know. It's black love at, man. We keep it FUBU style, you know, for because we was in the same conference, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. you know, so it, that they're old school rivals, you know, Morgan yeah, versus yeah. Hampton University. It goes way back. Way, way back. So, um, you say that, I remember before you were saying that you that there's not a lot of, that these kids are very surprised that they see somebody who represents them, who looks like them. And uh, we've had other guests on the podcast uh, to talk about why they think there's that stigma. What, for your experience, I'm sure you talk, spoke to other uh, social workers and people who are in your field that are, are your skin color and come from your communities. Why do you feel like this? there's a very limited amount of y'all? Like, you know. So I feel like people get typecasted into specific roles, right? So you commonly, when you hear the term social work, the first thing that kids and people in the community see, they hear ACS yes. worker. And they start running, ducking, and you stuff like take that. My kids. I feel like this times I had to walk through the community with a bulletproof vest on because I didn't know if I was going to get capped. People really, really treated it as if that was my role. And when I navigated a different sector, I switched from psychology to social work. So I always explain to people that I had a distinct need to provide clinical based services. I wanted to do therapy. So within navigating the field, the first time you enter, people are like, well, hey, you could work with it in this sector, right? You can help kids in this way. You can go in and make sure the conditions of their home is fine. But I was like, the conditions of their home is based off of a mindset, mm-hmm. right? So yes, I can go in and take kids out of a home that, you know, sight unseen, or when you look at it, like if the house is dirty or the house is unlivable, or I could teach kids the psychology behind why their house looks the way that it looks. Right. And that was a mindset for me. I tell people the reason why I didn't become a psychiatrist or a psychologist per se, and I chose to become a clinician, is because I didn't believe in over um, medication, over psych- uh, providing psychotropics to kids mm-hmm. and larger rates. Children of color were getting put on all these antipsychotic yep. medications and, yep. and all these stimulants, and that mm-hmm. was a problem for me. And I said, okay, well, I don't want to just go in in one aspect and tell people 
hey, I can help you get your kid on medication. Better yet, I can have a conversation with you about medication mm -hmm. and what it can be utilized for and knowing that it's not the only option in terms of treatment. So having people like that say and have that conversation, having people who look like you invest in that conversation and sit down with you makes all of the difference. Mm. So I had to kind of like change the mindset and say, when you hear somebody say they're a social worker, there's two streams of thought. I want you to look at me and see a different thing. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the, 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 the Latin culture. I mean, we know there's a stigma where in our families, we don't talk of if you got a problem or if you got a, a family member that's got, you know, psychological issues we don't talk about that you know so what do you feel about we that? don't talk about Bruno that was a very difficult portion of my work with the families they really don't understand what mental health is um, they would just say it was more of um, the kid was behaving bad. The kid doesn't understand. It was it was very interesting to service a lot of families where they just was like the kid is a problem. They didn't realize that it was like a whole family dynamic issue. Um, the the kids were just reacting to what they saw and to explain to a parent that the reason why they were um, be behaving this way was because of what they were exposed to right. it was very difficult a lot of families do not understand that they they weren't open to mental health they don't understand what mental health is mm -hmm. and even now to this day uh they still don't understand what mental health is i still have this conversation with my own family about mental health and they were like oh no they just are my comportado mm -hmm. which is they're behaving badly mm -hmm. um that's mm -hmm. not the case there's is more in depth to that and I, and I feel like you know especially you know being uh children of immigrants right they came from a place where they didn't have the elbow the metaphorical elbow room to have the time to think about what they're feeling and, and, and interpreting that mm -hmm. and breaking that down mm -hmm. and so they come here with all the sacrifice that they do make we appreciate always mm -hmm. appreciate them for that and they use that as a justification to be like yo like i withstood this mm -hmm. now i made a better life for you and you need to withstand it too because oh, i did it uh, yeah, and and the way they measure the, the you know uh, potential, in you know like oh I made a, I created a better I came here and created a better life for you, but not realizing like yo because you didn't deal with your shit you're now causing my shit, and <laughs> you're, you're 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 creating my shit and now you're not giving me an environment where I can deal with my shit, and by me wanting to deal with my shit you see it as weakness right mm -hmm. and so and then I can't also call you on that shit because you're just going to bring up the sacrifice you made to mm -hmm. get me into this room where now I can have the time to sit and think to myself, what, what is, what is bothering me? How, why is this doing that? And it's also the fact that they don't realize that they left their country. They're in a whole different country. Mm -hmm. There's rules and expectations of how you should raise your kids here. Uh, they feel a lot of families feel that corporal punishment is acceptable. They don't know right. the right ways to, to discipline their children. Uh, a lot of kids come to school and say, well, th this is how my mother hit me, and it may or may not be okay. A lot of a lot of parents believe that their kids should behave how they were behaving back home. These are different kids. These are a different generation of kids that are being raised in this country. You cannot come here with the same mindset that you had in your country. Those kids, depending on where they're from, I know kids from the Dominican Republic, they have a lot of land to roam freely. The kids here can are very limited in what they can do. There's not a lot of access to parks. Um, there's not a lot of access to a lot of outside activities for these kids now. I know for us, in our generations, we could go outside. Yeah. But a lot of these kids can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, they love TikTok. <laughs> but you know, like for, for black folks, like it was, it was very similar. It's like, you know, there was a certain mindset, right? This is a different generation now. You know, you needed a certain mindset to make it back then. When my grandfather was, you know, he had to leave school and he had to work because the family needed money. You know, he didn't have a high school education. So you needed a certain mindset to get your shit together mm -hmm. so that you can at least make some money in Jim Crow, you know what I mean? Where the laws was not built for us to succeed, you know? So you needed that strict mindset and that consistency. And they did that to one, protect us and two, make a better life for us. So now that we're here 
in a better life. It's not what it should be, but it's a better than what they went through. They're trying to impose those same standards on us. And it's like, no, you did. You use that, right? I'm not blaming you mm-hmm. for, you know, beating our ass every night. Right? <laughs> I, I, but now I'm, I'm, I'm smart and old enough to know why you did that, because you had to do it to protect us and make a better life for us mm-hmm. and make us strict. You got us there now. So pump the brakes, baby. We, like, you know, it's a new generation. You don't have to use that same corporal strictness, harshness that you had back then for now. It's, it's a safety precaution. Mm-hmm. Though. We can understand why our communities, communities of color, utilize that to, uh, to create order around it. My children are not safe going certain places mm-hmm. if they don't learn certain types of rules for society. Yes. There's a social normative that's created that tells people like, hey, you can't do this after a certain time. You can't go here. Right. You don't have access to that. Right. So it was like a grooming to almost say, an effort for us to survive, we have to assimilate in certain ways, yes. and we have to live out life like this. So if my form of discipline is keeping you in order, then I'm preventing you from getting into a situation yep. that can hurt you down the road. Yes. One of the most commonly things across the black and brown community that people say is like lazy. When we come across children mm-hmm. who are not moving quickly or not reading mm-hmm. quickly mm-hmm. or not working hard enough, right. they call them lazy. Right. And um, there's two words that I tell people I don't use in reference to children is lazy and bad. Mm-hmm. You know, right. those are like lifelong statements that stick with kids. But this is something that we're first. If you don't do what mommy asks you to do, you don't do what dad asks you to do. You're being bad. You deserve to be disciplined. Right. You don't get up. You're not reading as quick. You're not doing what I'm asking to do. You're being lazy. Mm-hmm. And that creates like a conditioning for kids where they feel like that's who I am. I'm a lazy, bad child. Right. <laughs> right. Because right. my mom and dad worked hard. Grandma and grandpa worked hard. I'm just lazy and bad. And you, and you <laughs> accept it as a defense mechanism because you mm-hmm. kind of it's like this mountain that I can never get to the peak of. Like, oh, you know what? I just get tired halfway up trying to compete because I'm always lazy. I'm always bad. And so, you know what? I'm just going to accept it and be in this lazy. They give up. Are parents open to these conversations? Oh, some of them you got to kind of like drag kicking and screaming. I'm not going to say, I talk to parents very different ways. I have this voice where I'm like, okay, you know, Miss Johnson, Miss Rivera, I'm going to talk to you like this. And I was like, all right, look, Miss Johnson, you know, Miss Gonzalez, we're going to have to talk a little bit. And you got to kick it to them in different ways so that you drive the concept home, right? I was like, you know, I always use the example of little Timmy. I always have an imaginary kid, little Timmy, that I use. Where I'm explaining things to families. And let's say little Timmy, you know, he's 13, but he read it on the first grade level. I don't think little Timmy lazy, right? I don't think he's lazy. I think that he needs more supports academically. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain to them what it looks like and the types of conditions that also like come in to foster why a kid would be struggling like this. Mm-hmm. Could your son be dyslexic? Could your son have a speech or communications disorder? There's so many different variants to what can be impacting your child. So what you may see is, oh, he don't want to do homework. He's acting out in class. But it could be something as simple as bolstering his literacy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have to kick it to parents very different in effort for them to feel where I'm coming from. But it's not just parents most of the time. It's also teachers. Teachers don't right. understand what's really going on in the classroom, especially after coming from a pandemic. It's a lot of kids who don't know how to read who are, are just coming to the country. I work with, in the district that I work with, we have a lot of um, immigrating families. And a lot of these kids do not know how to read, do not know how to properly write, and they're, they're afraid. So it could be seen as they're misbehaving, they don't want to follow the class structure, but they can read, they, can't, they cannot read nor write. That's, that's, that's what got me. But I enjoyed math. <laughs> <laughs> and math was a little, that was a tricky one. I like money, though. <laughs> <laughs> nah, ELA was in for me. Once I started learning about adverbs and, and con- I was like, nah, fuck this, man. Y'all. <laughs> they got me in fourth grade. And they were like, you can't read? <laughs> <laughs> How'd you get here? <laughs> no child left behind. I was crushing. I was crushing it, too. Yeah, yeah. The meeting started becoming more mandatory. Right.
No, not a no, citywide examination. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that, that's my trouble. So, so, yeah, so yeah. My, my entire trust. education is built on a on a on a on a on, on quicksand. Like, yeah, they might have to send me back to the fourth grade. <laughs> I went to the fourth grade, failed all those tests. Went to Catholic school. They were like, "Oh, let's see what's wrong." Ooh, you don't read that one. <laughs> <laughs> we go. We go. You need Jesus. We go. Said you got the third grade. <laughs> now I'm a fifth grader in the third grade. And you Because when you talk to families, they don't realize their rights in that situation. Mm -hmm. Your kids don't have to take standardized tests. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of families that opt out of the test taking process. Uh, There's certain, more. you know, and I, I get that all of the no, time. You definitely, um, definitely can't. Yeah. Definitely can't. So those things that become test taking anxiety for kids that create problems for them down the road where they feel like I can't try for this position or this opportunity because I'm not a good test taker. That's something that was fostered when they were little kids. Because if that one exam that happened back in the day, you felt like it was a setup. You're, you know, you're a little nervous when it comes time to um, opportunities where exams present themselves that you need to pass. So a lot of people, what they decide to do is their kids don't take an examination until maybe they do see the SAT. There's certain things that you can't avoid, right? Or the ACT, for example, you know, forces a different type of academic understanding. Mm -hmm. You can opt out all the way through. So like I said, a part of what we do also within the field of social work is I'm not just giving you, you know, information as, as it pertains to mental health or working with you in therapy. I'm teaching you different concepts too. So I tell people how to navigate society. That's, yeah. that's some dope information, but I'm going to tell you, I don't see many black families telling their kids, eh, you ain't got to take that test. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see it. I just, I just don't. I'm going to be real. Yeah. You know, I mean, I... That, 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 that's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna kick that in the chamber test. Well, that's, 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 I don't know. That's a good segue. Fuck those tests. <laughs> uh, wow, man. That, man. These kids are going through a lot. I feel like we could be talking about these kids all day, but uh, yeah. uh, we gotta wrap this up. Uh, we definitely need to have a part two to this because I, I feel like like figuring out. We got what, a lot more to touch on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But before we go, uh, we got. Uh, sponsor? No, 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 I'm, I'm bugging. Doing it. Artist okay. of the week. Artist of the week. Yeah, so artist of the week is Kipton Hinsdale. He is a he is an abstract uh, multimedia artist who is also a incredible uh, charcoal drawer for uh, a famous artist named Robert Longo. Works there, and I've seen some of the work that he does, and it's like you think it's a photograph where he uses his charcoal, um, but he's mostly known for his uh, his. His abstract multimedia graffiti-ish influence work. Um, he actually just today, his one of his works was in a photo in the New York Times. No, no, uh, uh, yes, the New York Times, uh, which was on the front page of the of the art section. So it was like a picture of this apartment, and his his painting. One of his paintings was right there. So big up to him, Kipton Hinsdale. Um, you can definitely up. commission him for work at kiptonhinsdale.com. Um, and you read more about him in our newsletter this week at attorneyswithswag.com. So thank you very much. Uh, sponsors. Sponsor goes out to Bailey and Bailey LLC. Um, they're attorney at law. They do a lot of uh, private work, including uh, civil litigation, real estate transactions, landlord tenant, uh, wills, trusts, and estate work, uh, and you know basic consultation. So you know whatever your needs are, whatever you may need. In terms of the civil realm, not criminal, but civil, uh, hit them up. Get that check. Yeah, get that check. <laughs> Bring that money. All right. uh, uh, but thank y'all. Thank you for the sponsors. Yeah. Um, yep. Thank you. Thank you so much for the sponsors. We really appreciate you guys. Without you guys, we would have to have this. Uh, I pay this shit for myself, and it'd be one mic. It would be all be Zoom. It'd be Zoom. Before we go, is any any you want to direct the audience to any websites or any social issues or what? Whatever. Social media. Yeah. Why? Well, yeah. Yes, I would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So you can find me at Miss Well and Woke. That is on Instagram. It can tap into any other streaming platforms that I am on as well and websites. I do consultations. I provide therapeutic services. 
and most importantly, information, because mm -hmm. information is key. So if you want well content, woke content, that's where I'm at. All right. You take insurance or? So, yes, I'm in the process of um, getting certified to take insurance. But for right now, we are doing sliding scale fees uh, and out of pocket. But soon, okay. soon okay. comes, soon yeah. comes. So I'm in the process of working some things out. Um, I am in the path of getting my LC. So when that comes into play, I'll definitely be putting myself out there to provide services for individuals, families, um, to make sure that they are connected to the community and make sure I provide them with as much level of services that I can provide. Okay. And while we've, we've, heard, we've, we've heard these terms in the past um, yeah. before, what, uh, just for the audience who might be oh, this first time listening, what's the LC? Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. LCS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so LCS. Social media or? So I do not have anything set up yet. So I'm waiting to st st establish myself and then everything will be up. Nice. We got you when you were sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we really appreciate you guys listening and check us out next week. We out. We out. So what they're saying, right, just be clear, clear for our audience, because I, I, actually, I actually read that article, I just look at that last what they said was Dropping gems like we preaching Don't overstep the line of my freedom of speaking We cast to the world, but the words in the street and Connecting all the minds of the people we reaching Yo, accepted, took your fence in, the contempting, teach you motherfuckers a lesson, and pressing the issue at hand. Nah, I don't care about objections, suspensions, and cell inspections, just oppression of black lives is my passion. And love for my fam is everlasting, so stop gassing these asses with glasses, cause in the end, I leave them with a trash. Uh, 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 uh. Glad I got no baby shit. COVID got me crazy, bitch. Damn. And, and you gon' have to edit this. NG. The jury's out, so you can't even credit us. No Stephen Sullivan void. Invalid evidence. No, you can't take us to court. Cause you know. The jury's out.